Good morning, Memphis. Oh, it's another beautiful day here in the Mid-South. And look, you've already gotten your day off to a great start by tuning in here on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee and I'm Sanaa. So every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So of course, you all already know that I do love coffee, right? We're here on Let's Grab Coffee, but you have to know that I also love food. I love to eat. I love all of the delicious things. And, you know, growing up here in Memphis, you know, that means barbecue. I don't have to tell you that we have the best barbecue. And I know that when you go out of town and you see a restaurant that says Memphis style barbecue, that you have a set of criteria for if that spot is authentic or not. Well, authenticity is a big part of food culture, but who determines what is authentic and what isn't, and why does that matter? To answer these questions and to kind of take us behind the scenes of some modern food movements, joining me today is Dr. Caitlin Bird. Dr. Caitlin Bird is a lecturer in sociology at Virginia Tech and a visiting scholar at the National Center for Institutional Diversity at the University of Michigan. Her book, Real Southern Barbecue, Constructing Authenticity in Southern Food Culture takes a deep dive into how barbecue restaurants manage the expectations of serving authentic Southern barbecue and what that really means while also attending to a variety of consumer concerns ranging from health to environmental and being socially conscious. Her forthcoming book, Southern Craft Food Diversity, Challenging the Myth of a U.S. Food Revival, examines the experiences and histories of marginalized groups who keep Southern foodways alive. Welcome, Dr. Bird. How are you? I'm good. And thank you for having me on the show. Yes, we are so excited to have you here with us this morning, and especially because we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, food. Um, so I don't know about you, but thinking about food, eating food, preparing food, I feel like my whole day is, is food. Okay, so what about you? Are you a food lover? Uh, definitely. And very much, as you just said, it seems like what I'm thinking about, like my day revolves around food and what I'm going to cook or what's on my grocery list for that week. Yeah. Um, so finding out that this was something I could research and that it could be my dissertation was the perfect combination for me of that. I could actually bring the academic side and write my dissertation on it while also still doing what I loved and still kind of getting to think about food and in very different ways than what I was familiar with at the time. Yes, I love that. I'm so happy to hear that you are a food lover because, you know, sometimes there are people who are like, I just eat food because I have to, right? And then, which is so depressing to me because I'm like, but it's so enjoyable <laughs> and delicious. Um, and then as you just said, you know, the research side, you know, some people just research stuff just because, right? Um, and you actually got to research something that you actually like. So kudos to you. That is very <laughs> exciting. Um, now I heard that you have over 200 cookbooks. 
I do. Not all of them moved with us um, at the time, but the rest are all still chilling in um, basically my parents' house until they get to get moved up here as well. Um, but I do. I have a ever-growing um, cookbook collection, it seems, and rarely do I walk into a bookstore and not pick up a new cookbook. I love but for it. the most part, they all get used. Okay, that was going to be my question. Do you actually use like different recipes or is it more of just like, this is the thing that you like to collect? Um, I use most of the, I rarely make the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. So finding new cookbooks and new ideas, um, it's always just interesting finding new inspiration for recipes. And I never follow the recipe exactly, of course, mm-hmm. um, but just the inspiration, kind of the guidance and then changing it up, depending on, of course, what's in season or something as simple as, oh, the grocery store didn't have mint this week. So what else can I use instead? Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, I already know that you have way more cooking expertise than I do. Uh, But I will say that, you know, once quarantine, you know, COVID-19, everything that I did get to spend, of course, uh, a lot more time in my kitchen um, and, you know, try out some recipes and, you know, just really enjoy being in the kitchen and cooking more of my own food. So that was really exciting for me. Um, Now, I wonder, did you learn any new cooking techniques or were there any recipes that you were you know, really excited to get to try during quarantine? So it's actually really funny that you asked that because I guess it was over the holidays, I got an intro to molecular gastronomy kit (sighs) Mm -hmm. to start playing with. And I haven't actually ventured into it yet. Um, Still just trying to figure out where's a good kind of intro starting point for something that doesn't involve a ton of ingredients in case something goes wrong. (laughs) Um, But probably one of the things that quarantine and of course not being able to go out to restaurants, uh, probably I guess the two things would be recipes like the braises and the things that take a lot longer that Mm -hmm. running back and forth between campus and our offices, just it's not possible to cook something for two, three, four hours on a weeknight versus when working from home and not leaving the apartment. It's like, oh, of course I can do that. (laughs) Um, And then also over the summer, I got a grill for the first time. So Mm -hmm. actually, and um, moving into an apartment that has a patio so I can have a grill makes a huge difference in that. But starting to grill for the first time has been, um, it's been fun seeing what things you can and can't grill or the varying successes (laughs) but this has been probably the two things with the quarantine and just the lack of restaurants that um, I've really done and then I had very high aspirations of getting better at making pasta but that didn't end up happening. I got too distracted by the grill instead. (laughs) (laughs) Something had to give. And so no homemade pasta. You're mastering the grill now. (laughs) 
All right. Well, speaking of grills, now, of course, you make me think about barbecue, um, which, of course, for the purposes of barbecue, as we think about it in Memphis, isn't necessarily happening on a grill, but we're thinking about wood, we're thinking about smoking, we're thinking about, um, you know, that Memphis barbecue, which, of course, we're really famous for pork shoulder and that pulled pork, whereas other cities may have, you know, brisket or other things like that. We're all about the pork. And of course, you know, we take our barbecue very, very seriously. Um, every May, we host the International Memphis in May Barbecue Fest. And I know a lot of cities throughout the U.S. boast about you know, their barbecue and what makes it the best or the most authentic. But based on your research, you know, what do you know about these ideas of barbecue and authenticity? Well, um, going to the first point that you made that barbecue and the idea of barbecuing, especially in the South, it's not cooking on a grill. It's mm -hmm. low and slow smoke, um, historically open pits, but depending on the location, um, some cities or um, areas don't allow open pits anymore. Um, so kind of the more modern smokers. But the one of the things that I found in the process of doing this research was that every state and even um, different parts of different states have these very entrenched barbecue traditions, whether it's the sauce, the um, type of wood, the um, cut of meat that's used, that within those areas, if something deviates from kind of these preconceived ideas of what is barbecue in Eastern as opposed to Western North Carolina, which is kind of the most famous distinction between whole hog and then not, um, and of course the sauce as well, the vinegar base versus the more kind of tomato based sauce. Mm -hmm. But all of these regions have what kind of they understand as authentic barbecue. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that was really interesting that came up over and over again was that what counts as authentic has to kind of continually change and evolve mm -hmm. as um, whether it's uh, one of the first questions that kind of came up that started this project was, how do you have an authentic barbecue restaurant if you're not allowed, to, if the place you live doesn't allow an open pit? Mm. So how can an electric, um, a, like electric pit star, electric smoker be as authentic as an open pit? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, they still use the same sauce recipe that has been passed down for generations or um, they're still in the same location. Um, the recipes are the same, the techniques are the same. Mm -hmm. So what counts as, and the idea that there is any one true authentic anything mm -hmm. um, is of course not a reality, um, right. especially it's, we're talking about food, we're not talking about an authentic Monet painting <laughs> that we can date and trace back. Um, it just, it doesn't, food doesn't work the same way as art or um, types of music would where we can still have that original that was produced by the original person. Mm -hmm. um, food, of course, either goes bad or <laughs> is consumed and no longer exists in the same way. Mm -hmm. I love so these. This, 
Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I just love these ideas of these shifting ideas or shifting criteria of what constitutes authenticity. So exactly as you just said, you know, focusing on the elements that you still retain, whether it's being in that same location or having this sauce recipe that has been passed down from generation to generation, like that folklore around it, and maybe covering or concealing or downplaying the fact that you're not using open pit barbecuing, right? Um, So trying to direct people's attention to those elements of quote unquote authenticity that you do have. Um, And of course, trying to shy away from the ones that maybe are typically thought of as being, you know, part of this authentic barbecue. Exactly. Um, And that was one of the things that came up and the most popular way of kind of overcoming this whether it's changing consumer, like health, like changing consumer health concerns or changing consumer demands for um, kind of being aware of where food is sourced um, or like the smoke regulations that certain cities have was um, continually going back to the recipes that had been passed down or um, the, that they were all, everything was made in house. Mm. Um, so not only was the recipe one that had been passed down because most um at least in the um among the pit masters and restaurant owners that are featured in the book um most of them are not a first generation kind of enterprise Mm -hmm. Um, some of them it may be the first generation commercial business but they didn't just start barbecuing Um, most of them learned from their parents or their grandparents a lot of the recipes can be traced back to grandmother's sauce recipes um, or um, one of the ones that's featured in the book is the desserts are all um, the grandmother's and the mother's pie recipes that they still, everything's made from scratch. Um, this kind of avoidance of processed or like the idea that barbecue is not fast food. Mm. Um, uh, with few exceptions of, there are a few barbecue chains across the South um, with varying degrees of success. Mm-hmm. But this idea that you can go into two different barbecue restaurants in the same way you could go into two different coffee shops or McDonald's and get the same thing no matter where you are just isn't going to happen. It's they're all um, the variant that gives them all their own kind of unique spin or makes their slaw more authentic than their next door neighbor barbecue restaurants and it's not that one is better or worse than the other that one is more or less authentic really um it's just that that's one family or one kind of business's recipe and then there's another and depending on the region or as you mentioned at the beginning if you're traveling and are looking for Memphis style barbecue in eastern North Carolina you may or may not find it but you're going to find Eastern North Carolina style barbecue there, which may or may not be what you're used to. Mm-hmm. Um, the sauce is going to be typically completely different with the vinegar and pepper base. And then, of course, there's in Alabama, a white barbecue sauce that's mayonnaise based. Uh-huh. I had no idea that was a thing when I started working on this project. Um, and, of course, the pork is kind of the most common across the entire South. But there are really two major exceptions that, of course, Texas, which is brisket, and that's more of the just historical availability of beef in the area. 
But then Kentucky, especially Western Kentucky, features mutton. And they use a, what they call a black barbecue sauce that's Worcestershire based. <laughs> and to someone not familiar with that, it would seem absurd to have mutton barbecue. But for that region, that's what is authentic to them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. how much that really does change in pretty much every region, not necessarily every state, but it's that was one of the things that was interesting. But they all go back to the same, the recipes or... Um, the traditions that they can claim that are unique to them and the people that taught them how to barbecue um, mm-hmm. that make them and make barbecue in general not fast food and not um, not well suited to like a fast food or a chain model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so these kind of general standards of how this authenticity is being created, right? Again, like you said, falling back on recipes or these traditions, especially this family kind of generational component, even though how we see it, you know, on our plates is very different with the actual different cuts of meats or or styles of sauces. Um, I'm wondering, you know, is it possible for someone to kind of be a newcomer in the barbecue game and not have this idea of a family tradition or this generational kind of passing down of, you know, recipes and, you know, grandma's, you know, pie or cake? Like, is it possible to have some other sort of origin story uh, for barbecue? Um, it's definitely possible. In the ones that are featured in the book, that was rarely the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it when in the few examples where it was, um, they had taken more of the competition route mm-hmm. into barbecue. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like Memphis in May and this kind of competition barbecue, um, that's how they learned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there was any case where they just like walked into like opened a restaurant and decided to start barbecuing one day um mm-hmm. most of them all at least whether it was a competition circuit watching other people trying it out and evolving um but like with anything um they most of them are learning it from somewhere mm-hmm. or someone um very i don't off the top of my head I don't think any of them just were like okay let's just start a barbecue restaurant (laughs) um but when they recount when they go back and kind of talk about especially for the restaurants that have been open for generations um when they talk about the origin stories of that first generation that started barbecuing Mm -hmm. um in a lot of cases it was just that's what you did for your family Mm -hmm. um you either raised pigs and that was what you did in the fall um, or in the summer for special events and holidays because it's something that could feed a large number of people. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it was a large family. Sometimes it was like a small community that would all come together for this kind of pig roast. Mm-hmm. Um, others wanted to or had a restaurant um, and for various reasons needed to add something to the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, um, that's how some started doing like barbecue ribs because mm-hmm. it was a cheaper cut of meat at the time and they could feature it on their menu as barbecue ribs and then make a profit. Um, others 
go back to when they were forced to stop selling alcohol during prohibition <laughs> and needed to find a way to keep the business alive. So barbecuing and selling um, side dishes and everything became an easy way to do that. Mm. Okay. Now you mentioned, you know, how some folks really are um, highly competitive and, you know, participate in the competitive parts of barbecuing like a Memphis in May or other types of competition. Um, how is that viewed though among kind of barbecue restaurant owners? Are they, you know, do they find value in the competition? Do they feel like it takes away from, you know, pay, you know, giving all their attention to barbecuing in the restaurant side of things? Um, or does it, or is it something that barbecue pitmasters feel they have to do in order to prove, I guess, the worthiness of their barbecue? Um, most were kind of indifferent to it if they didn't participate in it. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that participated um, loved it. It's a lot of free, well, not necessarily free, but it's a lot of publicity for the restaurant. But for the most part, if they didn't participate in the kind of world of competition barbecue, they didn't really comment on it. Mm -hmm. um, they're the closest a lot of people came, and this was more in terms of if they would open up multiple locations, was that as a small business, they were afraid of anything that would take them away from their restaurant and their customers. Um, just because if you're trying to split your time and attention across two different places or um, you're not going to be able to focus as much or do the things you could have done if it was just one location. Mm -hmm. um, but very, no one spoke really negatively about competition barbecue. Most just didn't express an interest at all in it. Mm -hmm. um, the, <laughs> the ones that did um, loved it and thought it was a great part of kind of their business and getting their name out there and would feature the trophies in front of their, like in kind of the front window of their restaurants. Um, and they talked about that being a really big draw to customers who would come in and start to ask about the trophies and the stories behind them. Mm -hmm. um, so that was how it was mentioned the most frequently. Um, it was more of a, for those who participated, it was huge. For those that didn't, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was just something that either didn't occur to them or just wasn't, they weren't interested. Okay. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, I'd like to hear more, of course, about barbecue, this idea of authenticity, and then who is really, who does this authenticity matter to? Um, you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Caitlin Bird and we are talking about barbecue. I'm feeling hungry. I'm ready for some barbecue early this morning. Um, but we're talking about how this idea of how authenticity is created within different food cultures. Of course, barbecue um, being Dr. Bird's area, one area of expertise and barbecue being a, an area of our expertise as well as Memphis. <laughs> and probably other folks, if you're tuning in, I bet your city or region has their own particular style of barbecue as well. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, does this kind of idea of authenticity, does it matter to the customers? Do customers really care about, you know, these great origin stories or the traditions or if the, the recipe was passed down, you know, from generation to generation? So the... 
the ones who had the origin stories typically featured it very prominently. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a big part of their identity. It was a big part of who they were. Um, it was really important in being able to pass down the restaurant to their children. Um, but as far as the like consumers, so, and that's probably one of the aspects of the book that um, I wish I'd been able to delve into more is like, what is the consumer's take on these restaurants? Mm-hmm. Um, in that they are so varied in terms of how do they talk about authenticity and how does it matter to them? Um, as the restaurant owner or the pit master. Um, but I wasn't able to actually get the consumer's take mm-hmm. on it, but all of these restaurants are still open. Um, they're financially successful. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously working um, for them to be able to stay open and to continue to be successful. Um, but of course, in the era of kind of Yelp and all of these review places um, and websites and it's so easy now for everyone to be a food critic whether it's online or Mm -hmm. on social media Um, the role that these stories really play and um, it's interesting to see one of the um, restaurants that or pit masters that's featured in the book um, uh, just won a James Beard Award a couple years ago, uh, oh, wow. kind of in between the ones book, in between the writing of the book and um, before I was able to go back and make changes to it. Um, <laughs> and uh, his name is Rodney Scott out of Hemingway, South Carolina. And he's actually the first barbecue pit master ever to win a James Beard Award. Mm-hmm. Um, and he taught like his restaurant has been around for years and he talks about how um, what he does is very much like South Carolina barbecue and the types of sauces and the meats that he does um, and for the James Beard Award which is probably the largest and most prestigious U.S.-based culinary award um, to acknowledge the importance of this barbecue tradition is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, these awards rarely ever go to um, anything other than a fine dining kind of white tablecloth restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, so these stories are important. And especially um, today when we've got, well, in a normal today, mm-hmm. um, when we've got a million of choices for where we could go to a restaurant and eat. Mm-hmm. ranging from kind of a chain fast food restaurant to any fine dining restaurant wherever we live. Um, so these, these, these origin stories and these um, kind of claims to authenticity become important for helping consumers decide between dozens or hundreds of options for food, depending on this place they live in. Um, and Whereas, of course, I didn't really get to talk to consumers in the context of this project. Um, these stories resonated with barbecue owners and not just the kind of the owner themselves, but these communities. Um, most of these um, restaurants have been in communities for years. Um, they participate in local like fundraising endeavors or um, donating food. Um, they're not necessarily just a restaurant. They try to be um, part of the community itself. Um, and 
for restaurants that, um, except of course the ones in the biggest towns um, like Memphis, where you've got a tourist um, tourist trade that can keep restaurants afloat. Mm-hmm. Um, the restaurants that weren't located in these major areas um, have to be part of the community. Mm-hmm. And it's especially true in um, one of the things that came up quite a bit throughout the, um, the oral histories was what happened when communities start to change, mm-hmm. especially when whatever the main job source in the area changes for um, these smaller towns that don't have a tourist trade and what these restaurants, how they saw kind of their business changing and their clientele changing um, or not changing depending on the circumstances. And then uh, of course the competition between other restaurants um, and not necessarily other barbecue restaurants, but just the insane number of choices that we have for where we would like to get lunch or dinner Mm -hmm. um, and how they have to find a way to be unique in such a flooded market. Um, and these kind of authenticity claims or um, the their ability to tap into kind of these broader food movements, whether it's healthy food, whether it's knowing where the pork is sourced from, knowing where the vegetables came from, working with local farmers, um, their ability to tap into something along those lines. Um, was seen as really important as competition increased or the kind of economic circumstances in their towns changed as manufacturing came or left. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where these kind of conversations about what does authenticity matter mm-hmm. really start to play in is that um, it helps consumers figure out where they want to go, but it also gives restaurant owners um, kind of a story to tell that can make them stand out in these marketplaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking as you were talking about, you know, the kind of balancing act that restaurants often may face in having this, you know, authenticity or, or this really great origin story that people can kind of identify with or attach to, but then also wanting to expand their business, uh, maybe not just, you know, in multiple locations or franchising, but other types of commercialization, whether it is, um, you know, having cookbooks or selling maybe sauce online or or, or sh- even um, increasing shipping, you know, it's internationally, right? Um, I mean, I just shipped, of course, this wasn't international, but I just shipped some Memphis barbecue to my dad in Wisconsin, um, you know, for Christmas. And, you know, he thought that was just the best thing ever because, of course, you're not getting Memphis style barbecue or really a lot of different styles of barbecue, um, as we think about it anyway, um, in Wisconsin. So I'm, I'm also wondering, you know, how do some of these pitmasters or do they see any anything, any type of balancing act that's required um, if they are branching into these kind of other arenas of commercialization? Uh, Definitely. Uh, So franchising was um, a lot of the, they were very hesitant about that. Um, That meant splitting things over different locations, splitting time, but they were much less hesitant about marketing their sauces Mm -hmm. um, or marketing desserts or basically having kind of like a little takeaway section where it's not necessarily, you're not taking away the barbecue, but you're taking away um, like a barbecue soup or something that you you can put in your freezer and then thaw when you need it. 
Mm -hmm. Um, But sauces were definitely by far the most um, common and most popular way that um, these restaurants chose to explain because uh, very much how your dad couldn't find Memphis barbecue sauce, um, they are so regionally specific. And um, in some cases, for example, in Alabama, when the there's kind of this debate between which of these original restaurants created the white barbecue sauce, <laughs> but they both sell their sauce. They both sell their sauce, so you can get one of these original creations. Um, that if you're going into a grocery store, it's probably going to be harder to find, um, or at least you're not going to find the, it's not something you can take with you. Um, and whether it's, um, wanting to be able to, for example, right now go to a favorite barbecue restaurant, at least you can take the sauce with you and kind of continue that experience. Um. Or if it's when you're traveling and you happen to fall in love with mustard-based barbecue sauce in South Carolina that you may not be able to find in Memphis, um, you can then take that sauce with you mm-hmm. and take a little piece of that restaurant and that memory um, and either share it with other people and be able to tell these stories or just have it for yourself to relive what a great trip you had. Um, but sauces were really the kind of most frequently mentioned way that um, restaurants chose to kind of expand their business models. Mm -hmm. Um, In many cases, it was seen as being a lot kind of, it was a much safer venture than um, trying to franchise um, or kind of taking that route because they could still focus on what they did. and still focused on doing it well. And in a lot of cases, um, most of these are family run endeavors. Mm-hmm. And it would be like one person would kind of take over that part of it. Um, so you still could have the focus being the restaurant itself, but you could have um, maybe a grown child or um, a brother or sister who all work in the restaurant together would take over this kind of sauce line um, mm-hmm. and could that could be their part of the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know that you got to talk to a lot of different pit masters from across the country. And I'm wondering along the way, did you find a particular type of barbecue that you absolutely loved or a favorite sauce? (laughs) Um, So the actual collection of the oral histories was largely in part uh, by the Southern Foodways Alliance out of the University of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Um, They keep these as basically a digital archive, um, just given the time constraints of writing a dissertation. Um, Being able to travel all over the South wasn't possible, as much as it would have been phenomenal to do so. (laughs) But kind of in my travels, the, I think probably my favorite sauce is the South Carolina mustard-based sauce. Mm-hmm. But um, growing up in Virginia, of course, there's barbecue restaurants all over the place. We don't quite have the same um, regional identity that Memphis does or that the Carolinas have. Um, but there are still restaurants, although they typically fall in, kind of track more onto um, one of the North Carolina styles. Mm-hmm. But definitely the um the sauces are my favorite part of it or of course the different side dishes um Mm -hmm. 
which I just, I mean, I'm a sucker for macaroni and cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, I feel you on that. I love a good, of course, pulled pork shoulder sandwich with Mm. slaw, extra sauce, because I'm all about the sauce as well. Um, And I also really love a, a good plate of rib tips. Uh, that I also love but I'm all about the sauces and like you I didn't even know there was a white sauce right when I first learned of that I was like wait what I mean I knew about different <laughs> kind of like vinegar based or tomato based or you know just the sweeter or even tangier sauces but the white sauce was a big surprise to me um, and it definitely made me question like is this really a barbecue sauce uh, but hey as you talked about Every region kind of has their own thing. And I'm all for the good food, you know, however it may come, even if it's different than what, you know, I maybe have grown up on. Um, We're going to take another break. And when we come back, I want to get more into some of your more recent research talking about craft food diversity. So you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. So we're here on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Caitlin Bird. We've been talking about barbecue, uh, but now we're about to get in some of her other work on food culture here thinking about craft food diversity. So when we're talking about craft food, what does that even mean? So I think first, when we talk about craft food, we need to um, kind of think beyond just the um, like the finished products. So if you want to continue with the barbecue trajectory, um, it's not just the sauce that can be a craft product. Um, whereas the finished product is very important. We also need to kind of think when we think about craft, we need to think about, um, kind of even beyond the finished product to what goes into it. And whether that's the farmer or the um, shrimpers that are the ones taking um, actually dealing with the land and nature and the sea to get these raw products to chefs that are then going to turn them into um, our local farm to table restaurant or um, the for example the um, kind of resurgence of heirloom grains in the south that become grits or Carolina gold rice, the farmers that are actually responsible for growing that rice Mm. Um, and expanding the definition of craft to include that. Mm -hmm. But also it's important to think outside of the typical locations. Mm -hmm. And when we, for, when we say craft food movement, typically it's going to be, oh, it's LA, it's New York city, Chicago. It's these major urban destinations. Mm-hmm. And that really does a disservice to the South as a whole, but the kind of um, these small restaurants or families or farmers that they're not going to be the ones featured on the Food Network, mm-hmm. but they're the ones that these chefs are going to be sourcing products from. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the um, country ham that uh, David Chang uses in the Mamafuku restaurants is actually sourced from a small Kentucky-based um, country ham producer. 
Mm-hmm. And you're not going to see that country ham producer on the Food Network, but you're going to see David Chang. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but looking like so much of the attention is placed on chefs for the finished product. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to kind of move the discussion beyond just the chef or the bartender that creates this amazing thing that we can watch be created in some cases. Um, and then we can taste immediately to include the people that created the um, vodka that went into that craft cocktail or the raw ingredients that that chef sourced. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these processes don't happen in these major urban areas where the chefs are creating these dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of the things that really kind of the my um, forthcoming book focuses on is expanding this definition of what craft is mm-hmm. um, and this image that it's not just kind of the typical middle class college educated person who doesn't want a desk job mm-hmm. that um, like with barbecue a lot of these are kind of family endeavors they're generations old um, especially in the case of farming and shrimping or uh, fishing in general um, these are just like there's a couple of the um, fishermen in the forthcoming book that they're fifth sixth seventh generation um, and they've been fishing the same waters that their ancestors did mm-hmm. um, and these stories are just as important mm-hmm. but also one of the things that came up a lot and this was especially true for value-added products. So when you go to a farmer's market and you can buy jams or pickles mm-hmm. and that to create a jam or a pickle, to can anything safely, mm-hmm. it takes a great deal of knowledge um, and skill that was for a lot of kind of accounts lost for almost a generation because it's just easier to buy it from a grocery store right um and the the importance of baking things from scratch or canning fresh jam or pickles um kimchi is also mentioned several times Mm -hmm. it's a knowledge that if it's not passed down it can be lost and it's an art form Mm -hmm. that um typically Um, almost exclusively women have honed for generations Mm -hmm. Um, but in a time of now we have a lot of time at home (laughs) that (laughs) prior to this when we're running around between our offices and jobs and everything that taking the time to can jam jam from scratch isn't something many of us would do let alone grow the fruit that then went into the jam Right. And yet farmers markets across the South highlight these people mm-hmm. and highlight um, whether they grow the, the fruit and the vegetables that go into these products or they buy them from other farmers at the same market and then turn them into pickles and jams that they sell um, or baked goods, depending. That mm-hmm. these are stories that really expand what we think about when we think about craft food. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the diversity kind of behind the chefs that we see that are often 
um, featured on kind of the popular media. Mm-hmm. And for example, like going back to Rodney Scott, um, the that year the James Beard Awards went to a more diverse group of people than they ever had before, and not just people but cuisines. Um, the white tablecloth fine dining model, not that it still wasn't obviously very popular, but at least in the 2018 Beard Awards, those weren't all the winners. You had barbecue restaurants, you had um, uh, bakers that were making egg tarts that won. Mm -hmm. So we started to see this kind of breadth of what counts as food that should be valued. in ways that really expand the kind of white tablecloth, classically trained chef. Um, and the my fourth book really tries to highlight kind of what these stories are and that um, they're like these stories are just as interesting as the Michelin star winning chef stories. Mm-hmm. They're just different and they're not taking place in the same spaces. Mm-hmm. These chefs aren't going to be in New York or LA. They're going to be in Savannah. They're going to be in Charleston or Memphis or all these different places across the region that have amazing food stories to tell and really deep food histories, mm-hmm. um, but that don't necessarily get the attention that they deserve or the recognition just because they're seen as it's the South. It's not equivalent to New York, but there's still some great food. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a lot of great food. You know, I love that you're bringing attention to really the whole process behind some of the, you know, the finished food product, right? As you mentioned. So actually where are some of these really high profile or celebrity, you know, chefs sourcing their ingredients and thinking about, you know, the decades or generations worth of expertise and knowledge and intimacy um, with, you know, a specific regional area or specific body of water that goes into having, you know, whether it's shrimping or having, you know, really delicious pork or, you know, whatever it is and all of, all of the knowledge that really goes into that. And also, as you were talking about, you know, farmer's markets and, you know, jams and pickles and, um, you know, just that whole process, it made me really think about um, there. It, we, of course, we have a couple different farmers markets here in Memphis. And one of my favorite items to get is actually pickles <laughs> uh, because I don't know, it just tastes different. Or maybe I feel that it tastes different or better because um, I feel more connected to the person who's creating, you know, this food item. Um, but also it just, I think, makes me think differently or have more nostalgia uh, because my grandmother was kind of, well, I guess, Lots of people's grandmothers, right, thinking about that generational thing, were really into, you know, pickling or canning or, you know, of course, jams and and all that. So it is a little bit of nostalgia when you can get it from someone who is creating it firsthand versus going to, you know, just a grocery store and, you know, picking up some of these items. So there's also, you know, that kind of connection. Um, which makes me wonder, you know, how much does the food we eat or maybe even where we're getting the food, um, you know, from a farmer's market or, or, you know, from someone who we think of as, you know, like this artisan, um, how much does that matter um, to how we think about ourselves? Because as you were talking, it just made me think about, you know, 
I think there is a big move to know like where people's, where they're getting their um, ingredients from, right? Like restaurants, are they getting them local or, um, you know, knowing more about the process behind, behind the food. So I'm wondering how much of our food choices are really tied into even how we think about ourselves. Um, Definitely. And there's been some great work. Um, Josie Johnson and Kate Cairns did a phenomenal book that came out a couple years ago that actually look at how do, um, especially women, um, have understand the food they source for their families. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that question is very much kind of a class based question because the Although farmers markets are trying to do, and most of them do a great job with doubling up on SNAP dollars or um, different markets have different programs, but that's, that seems to be the most kind of typical one that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, the ability to eat locally and source food mainly from a farmer's market or um, uh for one of the things that came up a lot in the um, the current and the among fishermen was knowing where seafood comes from. Mm-hmm. And that means shopping somewhere that actually labels their seafood mm-hmm. or that um, has a butcher or a shrimp monger um, that know enough about what they're selling to tell you that this shrimp is from the Louisiana coast or the Carolina coast um, and having that knowledge and ability. Um, of course, not everywhere has a grocery store that labels or seafood. Um, most like the farmer's markets have kind of exploded over the past several years, past really two decades or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it really is a the idea that like kind of this food and connection to identity is definitely at least for some, of course, not for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think for people that, and whether they label themselves foodies as um, uh, researchers have kind of looked at with this kind of online community, um, or as we started basically like, we're just food lovers. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're interested in where our food comes from and, kind of the farmer that grew it, whether it's because we remember what our grandparents did and we like being able to go and get pickles or in my case, it was always, my grandmother always made jam mm-hmm. <laughs> and being able to get these things from a farmer that take us back to being kids in our grandmother's kitchens. Um, but I think food is insanely personal, whether it's where, whether it's a concern of where it comes from, if it's a concern over having too much or too little, um, all of these things, I mean, food is art, but food is also essential to just basic survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, what makes it different from all their art forms also makes it essential to living. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just anything that is consumed in that way, whether it's, and I think even the kind of trend of the um, people are like, oh, why can't I just take a pill for my food? Uh-huh. And I think, but that says a lot about what food means as well. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's they don't have the time, they just don't care. Um, or is the current, with the current like COVID stuff that you can lose your sense of taste and smell. 
What does that mean for someone who cares or doesn't care about food? I mean, if you can't smell or taste anything, then the pill would probably be a great solution. Right. Because where's the enjoyment in that process? Um, But I think food is very much kind of, especially now, kind of the consumer age that we live in, um, a point of identity, not just for people who consume it, but the people that produce it as well. and that most of my research really is focused on kind of the producers um, of these products that get talked about as either local food or um, are healthy or less healthy or like what sparked it all and kind of sent me down this trajectory of research was I was at a research, I was at a restaurant and on the menu underneath the restaurant's name, it said a modern authentic Southern restaurant. <laughs> and I looked at who I was with that day. I was like, what? What does that mean? Mm. Like, how can, what is a modern, authentic Southern restaurant? And that really sparked this whole kind of trend of like, well, what is the, not only what is the modern South? Um, because it's definitely not the black and white South of the past. Mm-hmm. And what is authentic food and how does that track onto this modern idea of the South? Mm-hmm. Um, and that whereas barbecue is very much kind of the South, so are tamales in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's important to look beyond kind of what our preconceptualizations are of Southern food. Like it's not all fried and vegetables or greens that are cooked to almost like mush. Mm-hmm. that there's an art to barbecue. There's an art to the gumbos in New Orleans or the tamales in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we can even look closer into certain areas um, like the Virginia and North Carolina coast that have um, these very specific kind of very almost isolated to just one town. Mm. Um, food traditions that I even through the I had I grew up in Virginia I'd never heard of until I started researching for my next book mm-hmm. and this tradition around um in Virginia it's um, around yak mm-hmm. which is basically like a noodle and broth dish um has been instrumental for this community for um this church specifically's fundraising efforts. Mm. And with those efforts, they take their children in the youth group and tour colleges. Oh, wow. And they raise enough money to ensure that no child doesn't get to go regardless of what their parents make. Mm -hmm. And they've been successful in actually exposing kids to colleges and then those kids go to those colleges. but I would have, I didn't know that was even a thing in Virginia mm-hmm. um, until I started looking at this book. So mm-hmm. yeah. the, um, yeah, I love this so, idea of rethinking, you know, what it means to be, you know, what is Southern food, right? Um, I love rethinking that 
Um, and taking away from just this one solitary focus on Southern food, like you said, as having to just be fried or even in some instances overcooked or, you know, certain styles of cooking, but really um, re-remembering some of the food histories that have, you know, existed in whether this particular part of the South or other parts of the South, you know, over time. So thinking about what does that, you know, what does that mean and what does that look like and being open to rethinking, you know, what authenticity might mean right in some of these regions um well i have one more question before we go and that is i want to go back to something you mentioned or we opened um today's conversation with which is um all of your cookbooks and i'm wondering if you have any plans for making your own cookbook um as of now no but it's um so during since COVID has happened um we have basically a weekly dinner with our little pod, as we call it. Mm -hmm. um, and we all work together. So we all work from home. And I'm the only one really that likes to cook. <laughs> so um, one of the other people on our pod is actually an English professor. And they're always like, please, like, make a cookbook. I'll write it for you. Just let me write down your recipes. <laughs> So I don't, I don't know, maybe one day eventually. Okay. But I don't, I don't know. Right now I just, it's fun to just have their, I don't know. <laughs> it's, they're fun to look to for inspiration. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We definitely all need some inspiration these days. And I think food is the best inspiration there is. And if we're able to share a meal, you know, with friends or family, I think that's, you know, such an important part of, you know, just being communal and just, you know, having these really supportive relationships. So of course, food is very important to me. Um, and hopefully, you know, one day you will have a cookbook uh, that we can learn from and maybe even add to our own cookbook collections. Uh, but thank you so much, Dr. Caitlin Bird, for joining us here this morning. I've had so much fun talking to you about food culture and authenticity. And also, it just made me super hungry. <laughs> so I'm glad I have the rest of the day to eat all of the delicious things. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Ah, so I learned so much from Dr. Caitlin Bird this morning. And, you know, any excuse to talk about food, right? Um, I'm definitely a hungry person. Um, you know, there's a quote by from Julia Child that says, people who love to eat are always the best people. And I don't know about you, but I definitely agree. Uh, but for today's positive note, I just want to remind you of this truth. You can't buy happiness but you can buy cake. And that's kind of the same thing. Yes, that's absolutely the same thing. So look, if your morning maybe started off, you know, a little bit rocky, guess what? You, you have time to go to one of these local bakeries, pick yourself up a piece of cake, or maybe even pick up a nice little pastry for someone else and brighten up their day. Sometimes that's all it takes is something delicious to brighten up your day. Y'all, thank you so much for joining me here this morning. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR. 91.7 FM. Of course, remember, wherever you are in the world, you can also tune in on WYXR.org. I will see you all back here next Saturday morning at 9 a.m.